If I were the devil. If I were the devil. If I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. And I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population. But I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree. The. So I'd set about however necessary to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Good day, everyone. How are you doing today? Good to have <clears throat> excuse me. Good to have you here on the podcast today. <clears throat> so what you just heard was uh, Paul Harvey and decades ago predicting exactly what's going on now in our society today and that's the point of it is that uh, the devil is behind what's going on he's the enemy we're in a spiritual battle like I've said many times it's not Republican or Democrat it's uh, good versus evil and right now <clears throat> it should be crystal clear to you if it's not already after the raid 
the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, that should be crystal clear to you that the government is not on our side. That is, that has never happened before. And it's, it's unprecedented that a, 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 gov a presidential administration would raid a former president's house. That's never happened. Unprecedented. There's a lot of uh, cover-up going on about it and what their intents actually are, but that's not about... That's beside the point. This In this podcast, we're going to get to a CNN article uh, called An Imposter Christianity is Threatening American Democracy. And I want to explain to you, hopefully, the fact that this article also, like the FBI, is trying to cover up the truth. The fact is that this is a Christian country. It started out as a Christian country. And it started all the way back, going all the way back to the Pilgrims, back to Plymouth Rock, uh, back to Rhode Island, back to Pennsylvania, the founding the, um, of these states. They, they started started as Christian states, Christian colonies. There was no evil in them. They fled tyranny in the first place. They were Christians, they were devout, and they wanted to serve the Lord. And they, they fled from tyranny, which we're in now. I hope you understand now that we're not in a republic anymore. We're not in America, the land of the free and the home of the brave anymore. Uh, it's already been taken over with a coup that happened when Biden was installed. And he's just a puppet, by the way. But the puppet masters behind the scenes are working and they've taken over. This isn't America anymore. This isn't a free country anymore. We're like a third world country and it just was proven by the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. So hopefully you're awake by now. This isn't a free country anymore. They're slowly clamping down on us patriots. And that's what this article does. And that's what I want to get in. I'm going to be preaching on this Sunday. And I want to go ahead and go back to the Declaration of Independence and kind of see where we stand. For the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. That's where we're at. You have to make the decision, and you've decided already by now probably, if you're going to fight and resist tyranny or you want to forfeit your freedom for safety. But... I am, I'm on the same page with the signers of the Declaration of Independence. I'm a patriot and I'm uh, one that these, that the DHS is called a terrorist for spreading uh, mis, dis, and malinformation. I'm one that the FBI has said that if you carry a Betsy Ross flag, you're a terrorist. If you carry a Gatson flag, you're a terrorist. If you hold up a 2A symbol, you're a terrorist. Um, what this CNN article does is the same thing. Uh, they're trying to... It says an imposter Christianity. The, effect, the fact is that they are the imposters. I've been here. I'm, I'm one of the uh, the threads of America. I'm the true thread 
of this America. My family heritage is that we're Americans. And then we put our faith and trust in God. And we understand that this great country was put here by divine providence. I'm willing to pledge my life, fortune, and sacred honor to keep the freedom that we have that God gave us. Nothing comes unless we put in effort, sweat, blood, and tears, hard work to keep it. And right now, we've lost it. We have to take it back. It's not Republican or Democrat. It's we the people against a tyrannical government. That's what it is. And so, as a Christian, I've been fighting the devil for decades. I've been preaching, teaching for over 10 years. I'm a uh, son of missionaries, and we've been home missionaries to uh, across the East Coast to, to Rhode Island. I've been to Plymouth Rock. I've been to the First Baptist Church or Roger Williams Church in Providence, Rhode Island. I've seen the the the, the very the first roots of this great country. I know what this country is really about. But I want to address this um, CNN article. This is a lie. It just came out. Well, it's been two weeks now, but this goes along with what the FBI is doing. And what they're trying to do is to lie to this, to this generation uh, and take over. So Glenn Beck gave out or put together a, a rebuttal for this article. So I want to go through that. And what I've got is the kind of a rough draft So of, of that response. I'm going to read through because what he does here is he takes their points of that article um there's seven points or problems problem one is the choice of authoritative sources and tone problem two is the lack of definition of key terms and phrases problem three is the complete repudiation of incontestable historical facts problem four is lying about irrefutable historical evidence Problem five is poignant display of historical ignorance. Problem six is selective editing to reach the opposite results. And lastly, problem seven is completely ignoring historical facts. Now, I want to go through this in more detail. I'm going to be preaching a sermon that will be similar to this based on the history of our country. But in this podcast, I want to lay this all out so you'll have this um at your fingertips you'll have the the whole rebuttal which is not the whole thing this is i mean you can't put all of our history here but this is enough to show you the truth that we're a christian country we're not a jewish country we're not a muslim country we're a christian country we weren't a judeo-christian country we were christian country so problem one, choice of authoritative sources and tone. So they chose uh, Gorski is supposed to be the historian that says white Christian nationalism represents a grave threat to democracy because it defines we the people in a way that excludes many Americans. Um, the 
And it says, because they follow a different Jesus than the one depicted in the Gospels, says Dumez, who is also a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University, a Christian school in Michigan. Right there, you can tell it's um, liberal. You've got gender studies at a Christian school. There's not much to study there when you go back to Genesis chapter 1. Um, anyway, Philip Gorski is a sociologist at Yale University. He is neither a historian nor a theologian. CNN references him 12 times in the article. Um, apparently, their top authority on this topic. So, he is a sociologist. I think he studied psychology, psychiatry. Um, sociology, physiology, psychiatry is considered the most liberal field of study in America academia. So apparently this description of this Philip Gorski, he's a, a sociologist and he, so he thinks he, ha he has the the has the knowledge to to make comments on Christianity because he's a sociologist at Yale. So remember that he is not a historian, he is a soci sociologist. The second person, Christian Dumez, is a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. Notice they point out that she is a Christian or at a Christian university. So because she's at the university, this gives her a basis as a Christian authority to criticize other Christians and point out they are off base. So right off the bat in the article, they take sources from people who don't even know what they're talking about, to say it bluntly. She's referenced six times in the article. So these two people are referenced 18 times in the article. So they don't really have any authoritative voices in the whole article. But they're, they're saying they claim us to be a, an imposter Christianity. So here's a quote. Um, Having spent a lot of time reading the sermons and diaries of intrepid Methodist women in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, I couldn't help but see Hillary Clinton as a torchbearer of this vibrant tradition of progressive faith and activism. Yet it puzzled me that so many people on the left and right saw her as secular or even pagan. Duh. The more I began to dig into her story, the more I began to realize that to tell her story is to tell the story of Christianity in recent American history. That's a quote from Dumez, the so-called historian at um, Calvin University. CNN also fails to acknowledge that Dumez is currently openly contending against the university's Christian beliefs in important areas such as sexuality. Um, 
She is uh, currently a leader in opposition to the Christian beliefs in that area, not only debating the university's position, but also being photographed in front of a pride flag. Also, she is not a historian per se, but rather has a view of history in the perspective of gender studies. So right now you can see, obviously, these two are not qualified to be uh, claiming that there's an imposter Christianity here. Um, so let me continue here. So here's our here's examples of how vague they are. It says here's one of the, the claims in the article, a report from a team of clergy, scholars, and advocates. So notice that they they didn't say who it was. What team? Who are they? Who is on it? Who's the clergy? Who's the scholars? Who's the preachers are talking about? They don't use um, their advocates. They they don't claim who it is. They don't know who it is. Um, All right, so here is what they fail to mention for the first problem. This is on the first problem, the choice of authoritative sources and tones. So far, there's been found nothing but vague mentions, and the two, these two, the sociologist and this uh, so-called historian, um, don't have the qualifications needed. Uh, additionally, there's no effort in the CNN article to attempt to present truth or perspective. Truth is obtained by investigating the position of both sides. As Proverbs 18.17 states, the first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. There is no attempt to cross-examine the claims, which is the requirement of due process. Thus, we have both prosecutors and defense attorneys. That's from Proverbs 18.17. To convict without a due process search for the truth, the pr presentation of both sides is merely a lynch mob. Significantly, in volume 30 of the multi-volume legal series, Federal Practice and Procedure, more than 20 pages is given to how the Bible is what provided the due process rights found in the Constitution, found throughout the 4th through 8th Amendments. Notice the ad hominem attacks. Of 335 million Americans, they find a single specific person or two they cite for egregious behavior or beliefs and then impute to others what those select individuals believe, making them the poster child of the entire populace called by that name. There is no effort to show whether 1% of the Americans hold these beliefs or 38% or 50% or whatever. They just made a statement and claim that it's true. Go to my comments here. I see uh, Boogie Knights. Um, see him made a comment. He texted and want to say thank you and amen. And I see. I saw something coming up about a um, call in, but I'm not sure how to call you in yet. I might do that next time. I appreciate that. Similarly, erasing the line separating piety from politics. What does erase mean? 
or piety or politics? Does this mean Christians hold religious beliefs about public policy such as abortion, conscious protection, and vaccinations? Or does it refer to those who want the Pope to become the President of the United States? There's a big difference between the two positions. But they attach the tone of theocracy to the use of these undefined and vague terms. All right, so we haven't learned much from that article so far on the problem one. Uh, so, that, But we know that these two uh, references that they used so far aren't even qualified for their positions. Problem two, lack of definition of key terms and phrases. Many want to reduce or erase the separation of church and state. But white Christian nationalists are inspired by those decisions because one of their central goals is to erase the separation of church and state in the U.S. So in this problem, we're going to see what is the separation of church and state uh, because they get it wrong every time. According to court and public policy decisions, it includes an individual personally expressing individual personally expressing his faith and beliefs in public. So they believe Christians are theocrats for wanting to see individuals receive the Constitution's guaranteed protection for free speech and religious expression that many courts have ignored. Consider some of the separation of church or separation of state decisions below. All right, so here's a list, and I'm going to read the whole thing so you have, so you get the idea. Uh, but these are examples of the separation of state. A student was prohibited from writing a research paper on a religious topic, draw religious artwork in an art class, or carry a personal Bible onto school grounds. A school forbade a Bible from being placed in its reference library. Cadets at a state military academy were banned from praying over their meals. A state employee in Minnesota was barred from parking his car in the state parking lot because of a religious sticker on his bumper. A five-year-old kindergarten student in Saratoga Springs, New York, was forbidden to say a prayer over her lunch and was scolded by a teacher for doing so. Senior citizens who regularly gathered at a community center in Balch Springs, Texas, were prohibited from praying over their own meals. A library employee in Russellville, Kentucky, was barred from wearing her necklace because it had a small cross on it. College students serving as residential assistants in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, were prohibited from holding Bible studies in their own personal dorm rooms. A school official in St. Louis, Missouri, caught an elementary student praying over his lunch, lifted the student from his seat, reprimanded him in front of other students, and took him to the principal who ordered him to stop praying. There are more examples of this, of course, and that's the separation of state that they want. But what does it actually mean? They, they don't actually go to the truth of separation of church and state. But here, this is the truth about it. So you need to ask Jefferson. 
When Jefferson became president in 1801, his election was particularly well received by Baptists. This disposition was understandable for across much of American history, they had frequently found their free exercise of religion restricted under the power of state-established churches, such as the Anglicans in Virginia. In fact, this had been the history of Europe and even in the world, and it was history which had caused America to move in a completely opposite direction. Numerous American writers specifically spoke about this world and European history and how it directly shaped a completely different approach in America. It began in 390 AD when Emperor Theodosius I unilaterally assumed control of the church and assimilated it into the state, decreeing Christianity as the official religion of the empire and declaring all other religions illegal. Thereafter, emperors of the state regularly made themselves head of the church, with church officials not only answering to state authorities, but even being required to enforce any religious doctrines the state decreed. In this period, there was a distinct lack of religious toleration and protection for the rights of conscience. Absolute religious conformity was vigorously enforced by the state, and nearly every negative incident in world history associated with Christianity, the Inquisition, the Crusades, etc., occurred during this time. Directly related to the American experience in England, in 1536, King Henry VIII started and made himself head of the National Anglican Church and established what religious beliefs and practices would and would not be permitted. The English Parliament even passed laws stipulating who could take communion who could be a minister of the gospel, etc. Thus, governmentally controlling what should have been purely ecclesiastical church matters. Subsequent national leaders similarly continued their control over the religious beliefs and expressions of the people, including Henry's daughter, Queen Elizabeth, who executed Reverend John Greenwood, pastor of the Pilgrim Congregation that eventually came to America. When he stated that Christ was the true head of the Christian church, not the queen. After his execution, Parliament then passed a law declaring that anyone who said the queen was not head of the church would be thrown into prison without bail. Most of Europe was characterized by the same government control of religious beliefs and practices and America became a place where individuals could come and publicly exercise their faith without being punished by government for doing so. Some of the many groups experiencing government religious persecution that fled to America to enjoy religious freedom included the Pilgrims, Puritans, who came to America in part to escape their brutal treatment from the English church state that was in 1620-1630, Jews facing the Inquisition in Portugal, 1654, Quakers fleeing England after some 10,000 had been imprisoned or tortured, that was in 1680, Anabaptists, that includes Mennonites, Moravians, and Dunkers, persecuted in Germany in 1683, 400,000 Bible-believing uh, Huguenots persecuted in France after 110,000 of them had been killed in 1685. 20,000 Lutherans were expelled from Austria in 1731. Do you get the picture? 
Americans were very familiar with state-established religion and churches, and the Baptists were fully aware with Jefferson's record of championing religious freedom for Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Jews, and all others, and working to end the official state Anglican Church in Virginia. Given his well-known record of working for religious freedom, he received numerous letters of congratulations from Baptist organizations following the election. One such letter was penned on October 7, 1801 by the Baptist Association of Danbury, Connecticut. Their letter began with an expression of gratitude to God for Jefferson's election and then expressed their grave concern over governmental laws that protected their free exercise of religion, thus suggesting that their religious privileges were being guaranteed by the apparent generosity of government. Why would ministers object to the state guaranteeing religious freedom? Because, too, the far side of Danbury Baptist, the presence of governmental language protecting their free exercise of religion, suggested that it was a government-granted right, which someday might cause the government to think it could be taken away or regulated, rather than a God-given, unalienable right. Notice, it, our, our religious freedoms doesn't come from the government. It comes from God. And it was to remain that way. That's why these so many people fleed their own countries. And that's why we have America, because we fled from the government restricting religion. They believe that government should not interfere with any public religious expression unless, as they told Jefferson, that religious practice caused someone to genuinely work ill to his neighbor. That's, I think, would be like cults. They allow true worship and true religion, but nothing satanic, nothing immoral. Because we're based on actually, you know, morality, not majority. The Danbury Baptists were writing to President Jefferson, fully understanding that he was an ally of their viewpoint, not an adversary of it. It was Jefferson's firm position that the federal government had no authority to interfere with, limit, regulate, or prohibit public religious expressions, a position he stated on many occasions. And this is what you don't hear. You don't hear the many occasions that Jefferson stated his position. Here's a few. No power over the freedom of religion is delegated to the United States by the Constitution. It's the First Amendment. In matters of religion, I have considered that its free exercise is placed by the Constitution independent of the powers of the general federal government. Our excellent Constitution has not placed our religious rights under the power of any public functionary. Three statements by Jefferson. None of these or any other statements by Jefferson contain even the slightest hint that religion should be isolated or removed from the public square, or that the public square should be secularized, but rather only that the government cannot limit or regulate religious expressions. Fully understanding their concerns, Jefferson replied to them on January 1, 1802, assuring them that they had nothing to fear, the government would not meddle with their religious expressions, whether they occurred in private or in public. That's the problem, is that too many of us, I'm going to talk, I'm, I'm speaking to Christians, 
and Americans. There is a difference. But the problem is that we have been scared to not speaking about God and not speaking about Christianity in the public. And we need to quit that crap and talk about God and speak about the Lord and follow him in public. That's the problem. That's why we're in the state we're in now is because we caved to the opposition instead of standing on the facts and the truth of our country. Here's another quote of Jefferson. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared in the First Amendment that their legislator should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. So what does that actually mean? That actually means that they're keeping the state out of the church not the church out of the state. The wall of separation between church and state was a metaphor used by Jefferson not to secularize the public square, but rather just the opposite, to assure that the government would protect rather than impede religious beliefs and expressions. As he noted concerning religion, the First Amendment says simply, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The first part of this Constitution clause prohibits the government from forming a state-established religion. That was common in the, the old world. Catholics in Spain, France, and Italy, Anglicans in the Great Britain, Lutherans in Germany, Presbyterians in Scotland, and so forth. And the second part prohibits government from stopping public religious expressions. There was nothing here to prevent individuals, groups, officials, students, or any other from expressing and practicing faith in public or to prohibit government from engaging in general religious beliefs or practices. It actually was encouraged that the government carry out religious beliefs and practices, i.e. George Washington, Let's see. Also on this note, before I forget, I want to mention something that I learned yesterday. That is that uh, Nicaraguan government, they have declared God dead. And that they have, it looks like they've got Antifa or BLM burning all the Catholic churches in Nicar Nicaragua. So that means there's going to be even more immigration coming our way. Historically, the early courts had identified a very small class of actions that if perpetrated in the, in the name of religion, the government didn't, did have legitimate reason to limit, including bigamy, concubinage, incest, child sacrifice, infanticide, parricide, and other similarly harmful religious crimes. But outside of these handful of destructive behaviors, the government was not to impede traditional religious expressions in public, whether the offering of prayer, display of religious symbols, use of scriptures, acknowledgement of gods, or so forth. Separation of church and state was to keep the state out of the church. And where we're at now is the, that Obama held satanic worship in the White House. And that's where we're at. 
it's more like um, it's a satanic hive in DC is what it is. You see where we're going? We're going downhill because we're pushing God out of the, the government. They pushed him out. He's no longer at the head as he was when we started this country. God was always in charge and always in control. Our leaders, as we'll see as we continue here, were always giving God, the Creator, divine providence, was always given the credit for this great country. This uh, was universal, the universal understanding of separation of church and state until landmark rulings in 1947 and 1948 in the Everson versus Board of Education and McCollum versus Board of Education when the Supreme Court first completely reversed that meaning. In that case, the court did not cite Jefferson's full letter only 233 words long and very clear in its explanation. But rather, they only quoted an eight-word separation metaphor, completely severing it from its historical context and the rest of Jefferson's clearly worded letter. As a result, for the first time, Jefferson's phrase was used to limit rather than to protect religion in the public square. So from that day on, they started using Jefferson's clear and concise meaning and construing it to persecute the church. Here are um, some more examples, historical facts of Jefferson as I continue with, and this is, um, this was compilation was put together again I'll give the credit to Glenn Beck I did not put all this together but what I've been reading are historical facts that you can dig up on your own but Mr. Glenn Beck did a great job putting it together so in, in 1790 Jefferson was placed in charge of overseeing the layout and building of Washington DC and when the Capitol was finished, he approved a plan whereby Christian church services, notice Christian church services, would be held each Sunday in the Capitol's largest room. But instead, I said White House, but Obama had that the satanic worship in the Capitol. Um, but Jefferson set the president's precedence for that era, 1790. Christian church services would be held each Sunday in the Capitol's largest room, the Hall of the House of Representatives. Jefferson immediately began attending church there throughout his two terms as president. U.S. Congressman Manasseh Cutler, who also attended church at the Capitol, affirmed that he, Jefferson, and his family have constantly attended public worship in the hall. Mary Bayard Smith, another attendee at the services, confirmed, Mr. Jefferson, during his whole administration, was a most regular attendant. He even had a designated seat at the Capitol Church. Under President Jefferson, Sunday church services were also started at the War Department and the Treasury Department. Whoa, man, they need church there for sure. Government buildings of the executive branch under his direct control. 
So, on any given Sunday, worshipers could choose between attending church at the U.S. Capitol, the War Department, or the Treasury Department, all with the blessings of Jefferson. One day, as Jefferson was walking to church at the Capitol, he told a friend why he was such a faithful attendee at the Capitol Church. Quote, No nation has ever yet existed or been governed without religion, nor can be. The Christian religion is the best religion that has been given to man, and I, as chief magistrate of this nation, am bound to give it the sanction of my example. Unquote. Jefferson also arranged for Christian ministers he knew to preach at the U.S. Capitol. Additional presidential actions of Jefferson that today likely would be forbidden in his name included, here's a list of what he did, authoring the plan of education for the Washington, D.C. public schools in which he made the Bible the primary reading text for students, signing federal acts for setting aside government lands so that missionaries might be assisted and propagating the gospel among Indians. So again, problem number two, and their assertion of separation of church and state debunked by evidence and historical facts. Two more points on that. Jefferson directed the Secretary of War to give federal funds to a religious school established for Cherokees in Tennessee. And lastly, negotiating and approving a treaty with the Kaskaskia uh, Indians that federally funded a Catholic priest and the erection of a church building in which to worship. That would be interesting. I want to go see these churches. If they're still there. Like I said, I've been to the, the First Baptist Church. Roger Williams Church there in Providence, Rhode Island. Also, while in public office, he recommended that the official seal for America be an image of the Bible account of the children of Israel in the wilderness, led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That's what Benjamin Franklin wanted to make our seal. Instead, we've got an eagle. Uh, with the national motto, let me reread that. Also, while in public office, he recommended that the official seal for America be an image of the Bible account of the children of Israel in the wilderness, led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. With the national motto, Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. He made this the motto on his personal private seal. He also introduced into the state legislature a package of bills that included numerous measures protecting and encouraging religious activities in public. In case I forget, I want to go ahead and mention that um, the lies in the church is that Jesus was meek. And that meekness means weakness, and that you're supposed to sit there and take everything that the devil throws at you, which is in complete opposition to Ephesians chapter 6, and you put on the whole armor of God. 
This is our stance. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. That has been our motto from the very first second of this America. Jefferson saw no violation of, of it in any of these actions. In fact, no one did, not even his critics or enemies. No one ever raised a voice of dissent against Jefferson's governmental religious practices. No one claimed that there were any improper or violated or even violated the Constitution. They didn't then and they shouldn't today just because judicially active secularists demand so. We are not the imposters. Problem three, complete repudiation of incontestable historical facts. But the notion, this is the, the out of the article, the bullet point out of the article, but the notion that the U.S. was founded as a Christian nation is bad history and bad theology. Second bullet point on that. One of the most popular beliefs among the white Christian nationalists is that the U.S. was founded as a Christian nation. All right, so we're going to address that. Here we go. The Christian nation or Christian nationalism phrase is used 44 times in the article and it is never defined, but is always portrayed as being a nauseous anti-historical myth. Significantly, on literally hundreds of occasions in the past two centuries, state and federal courts had routinely declared America as a Christian nation. This is what you need to, if you haven't, if you haven't settled on this fact, you need to settle on this fact now because we are fixing to be in another revolution, another revolutionary war. If we don't settle this right now and get the American people, we the people, settled that this is a Christian nation. The country of America is Christian. If we don't get this in our head and kick out all the, this corruption, this coup that has happened will be permanent. All right, let's go to the facts. For starters, in a unanimous decision in 1844, the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed that America was a Christian country. They declared it. In 1892, the Supreme Court again delivered a unanimous ruling declaring of America that this is a Christian nation. In 1931, the Supreme Court reaffirmed the same position for a third time, stating, We are a Christian people. If you're afraid that we don't have any uh, governmental backing, here it is. They declared it three times. The Supreme Court. We are a Christian people. Justice David Brewer, author of the unanimous 1892 Supreme Court Christian Nation decision, explained that America is a Christian nation because it values culture and institutions were shaped by the principles of, you guessed it, the Bible. He observed that the calling of this republic a Christian nation is not a mere pretense but a recognition of a historical, legal, and social truth. So historically, to say that America was a Christian nation did not mean that other faiths or beliefs were to be excluded. To the contrary, all were welcome. 
but general Christian values and principles, not theology, were always maintained as part of public policy. Things such as don't murder, don't steal, don't commit perjury, treat others the way you want to be treated, and so forth. Here is, here's, um, this is just an inkling of additional historical evidence demonstrating that every generation until this one considered America a Christian nation, including Jewish leaders today who are openly grateful that America is a Christian nation, since such a nation provides freedoms and rights to all. Now notice, I haven't said anything bad to any other religion. The fact is that America is a Christian nation, but we accept Jews. We accept Muslims, religion, the non-violent ones, and so on. If you get the picture, we tolerate this as a country, but we are a Christian nation, and we hold Christian values directly from the Bible. That's us, but we show love and compassion to others. All right, here it is. Presidential declarations. America, this is a quote, America was born a Christian nation. America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of the righteousness which are derived from the revelations of Holy Scripture. Woodrow Wilson, quote, in these last 200 years, we have guided the building of our nation and our society by those principles and precepts brought to earth nearly 2,000 years ago on that first Christmas. Lyndon Baines Johnson, quote, Let us remember that as a Christian nation, we have a charge and a destiny. Richard Nixon, quote, American life is builded and can alone survive upon the fundamental philosophy announced by the Savior 19 centuries ago. Herbert Hoover. Quote, This is a Christian nation. In this great country of ours has been demonstrated the fundamental unity of Christianity and democracy. Harry Truman. Numerous other presidents have also affirmed that America is a Christian nation, including John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, John Quincy Adams, John Tyler, Zachary Taylor, James A. Buchanan, Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses S. Grant, William McKinley, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Dwight D. Eisenhower, etc. Here's are some colonial charters and governments. And I think we got here one in here about South Carolina. Here down further down, let's see that I already know about. Let's see. The 1606 Virginia Charter declared that the colony was started for the propagation or propagating of Christian religion to such people as yet live in ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God. That was the Virginia Charter. Look at Virginia now. The Mayflower Complex Compact of 1620 declared that their endeavor was undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith. The 1629 Charter for the Massachusetts Bay Colony declared that winning the country to the knowledge and obedience of the only true God and Savior of mankind and the Christian faith. 
is the principal end of this plantation or colony. The 1639 Fundamental Orders of the Connecticut declared that its main purpose was to maintain and preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which we now profess. The 1643 United Colonies of the New England affirmed, We all came into these parts of America with one and the same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity with peace. Subsequent colonial charters and governing documents contained similarly forthright Christian declarations. The historical evidence was clear, so clear, that in 1833, U.S. Supreme Court Justice John Marshall affirmed one great object of the colonial charter, charters was avowedly the propagation of the Christian faith. What's our problem? Why are we not propagating the Christian faith as a, as a country? anymore. What's the problem? Well over a century later, U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren reaffirmed, quote, I believe no one can read the history of our country without realizing that the good book and the spirit of the Savior have from the beginning been our guiding uh, geniuses, geniuses. Whether we look to the first charter of Virginia or to the charter of New England or to the charter of Massachusetts Bay, or to the fundamental orders of Connecticut, the same objective is present. A Christian land governed by Christian principles. Three, the legislative branch. Following the revolution and the writing and ratification of the U.S. Constitution, Congress drafted the Bill of Rights, the capstone of the Constitution. Significantly, 165 years, years later, U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren declared of that event, quote, I believe the entire Bill of Rights came into being because of the knowledge of our forefathers had of the Bible and their belief in it. Freedom of belief, of expression, of assembly, of petition, the dignity of the individual, the sanctity of the home, equal justice under law, and the reservation of powers to the people, I like to believe we are living today in the spirit of the Christian religion. I like also to believe that as long as we do so, no great harm can come to our country. In 1852-1853, when a group sought a complete secularization of the public square and a secession of all religious activities by the government, Congress responded with unambiguous declarations about America as a Christian nation. House Judiciary Committee. Had the people during the revolution had a suspicion of any attempt to war against Christianity, that revolution would have been strangled in its cradle. At the time of the adoption of the Constitution and the amendments, the universal sentiment was that Christianity should be encouraged, not any one sect or denomination. In this age, there can be no substitute for Christianity that in its general principles is the greatest or is the great conservative element on which we must rely for the purity and permanence of free institutions. Senate Judiciary Committee. We are Christians not because the law demands it, 
not to gain exclusive benefits or to avoid legal disabilities, but from choice and education. And in a law thus universally Christian, a land thus universally Christian, what is to be expected, what desired, but that we shall pay a due regard to Christianity. In 1856, the House of Representatives also declared the great vital and conservative element in our system is the belief of our people in the pure doctrines and divine truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the judicial branch. Consider declarations of prominent U.S. Supreme Court justices regarding America as a Christian nation. Here's a quote. There never has been a period in which the common law did not recognize Christianity as lying at its foundations. There would seem to be a peculiar propriety in viewing the Christian religion as the great basis on which it must rest for its support and permanence. Justice Joseph Story on the court from 1812 to 1845. For many years, my hope for the perpetuity of our institutions has rested upon the Bible morality, and the general dissemination of Christian principles. Our mission of freedom is not carried out by brute force, by canon law, or any other law except the moral law and those Christian principles which are found in the scriptures. Justice John McLean on the court from 1830 to 1861. Quote, Christianity came to this country with the first colonist has been powerfully identified with its rapid development, colonial and national, and today exists as a mighty factor in the life of the Republic. This is a Christian nation. The calling of the Republic of a Christian nation is not a mere pretense, but a recognition of an historical, legal, and social truth. Justice David Brewer on the court from 1890 to 1910. Uh, we could just keep going and going with this. Um, Here's more quotes. Um, Our laws and institutions must necessarily be based upon and embodied and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It is impossible that it should be otherwise. And in this sense, and to this extent, our civilization and institutions are emphatically Christian. Illinois Supreme Court, 1883. Democracy is the outgrowth of Christianity. Although the constitutional decree of freedom of religion and worship embraces any faith, ours is a Christian nation. That was the Kentucky Court of Appeals in 1945. Our great country is denominated a Christian nation. We imprint in God we trust on our currency. Our state has even sometimes been referred to by cynics as being in the Bible Belt. It cannot be denied that much of the legislative philosophy of this state and nation has been inspired by the Golden Rule and the Sermon on the Mount and other portions of the Holy Scriptures. That was Mississippi Supreme Court in 1950. 
It is well settled and understood that ours is a Christian nation, holding the Almighty God in dutiful reverence. It is so noted in our Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution of every state of the Union, since George Washington's first presidential proclamation of Thanksgiving Day, each such annual proclamation reiterates the principles that we are such a Christian nation. At public expenditure, we engrave on our coins, in God we trust, and print the same on currency. Our national motto, adopted by joint resolution of Congress, is in God we trust. Our national anthem closes with these words, in God is our trust. We consider the language used in our Declaration of Independence and in our national constitution and in our Constitution of Oklahoma, wherein those documents recognize the existence of God and that we are a Christian nation and a Christian state. Oklahoma Supreme Court, 1959. All right. Point five, American Jewish leaders. There is an abundance testimony of American Jewish leaders who are not Christians, but who nevertheless strongly defend America as a Christian nation. Here are some of their quotes. This is a Christian country. It was founded by Christians and built on broad Christian principles. Threatening? Far from it. It is in precisely this Christian country that Jews have known the most peaceful, prosperous, and successful existence in their long history. Jeff Jacoby, columnist. Christian America is the best home our people have found in 2,000 years. This remains the most tolerant, prosperous, and safest home we could be blessed with. Aaron Zellman, author, head of civil rights organization. I believe that it is good that America is a Christian nation. Too many Americans do not appreciate the connection between American greatness and American Christianity. Dennis Prager, best-selling author, national columnist, talk show host. This is a Christian nation, my friends, and all of us are fortunate it is one. Speaking as a member of a minority group and one of the smaller ones at that, I say it behooves those of us who don't accept Jesus Christ as our Lord as our Savior to show some gratitude to those who do, and to start respecting the values of and traditions of the overwhelming majority of our fellow citizens, just as we keep insisting that they respect ours. Bert Prelutsky, National Columnist. Clearly, this nation was established by Christians. As a Jew, I'm entirely comfortable with the concept of the Christian America. The choice isn't Christian America or nothing, but Christian America or a neo-pagan hedon, uh, hedonistic rights without responsibilities, anti-family, culture of death, America. Jews I read, let me reread that. The choice isn't Christian America or nothing, but Christian America or a neo-pagan hedonistic Rights without responsibilities, anti-family, culture of death, America. It ended right there. I thought it continued. All right. So then there we see these examples, these quotes from Jews, understanding that this is a Christian nation. It's not a Judeo-Christian, which mean, where people are taking that phrase to mean that it means it's, an, it's a Christian Jewish country, which is not. It's distinctly, singularly Christian, 
But we have Jews. Like I said, we have Muslims. We have other religions. And notice that all of our denominations aren't mentioned. It's Christianity that is mentioned, not denominations, not Baptists, not Lutherans, not going down the line, Presbyterians, but it's Christians, Christianity. Jesus is the focal point. Problem number four, lying about irrefutable historical evidence. So here, not we've gone over tons of historical facts, but I'm going to keep going because they, they we need to. I mean, how many people do you know of that know what I'm reading about or understand the historical facts? How much of this do you know? I mean, I can say I don't all these quotes and all I don't know about all of these people, but a lot of these historical facts I am aware of. And but a lot of it I was not aware of until doing some more research. And that's what we have to do. If we don't know it, we need to research it. We need to find it, find out the truth. And you'll see the truth is we're a Christian country and they're, there's, they're trying to destroy it. Here's the their point in the article. Virtually none of them, virtually none of the founding fathers could be classified as evangelical Christians. That is an all-out lie. There are numbers of unequivocal and clear declarations quickly disproving this. Here are some of the significant founders and their declarations certainly sound uh, some of the declarations I'm fixing to read are going to definitely sound like they're evangelical Christians for sure. All right, so here's some uh, statements, some quotes. Uh, the first one is uh, from John Adams. He's one of the signers of the declaration. The Holy Ghost, well, that was precise. The Holy Ghost carries on the whole Christian system in this earth. Not a baptism, not a marriage, not a sacrament can be administered but by the Holy Ghost. There is no authority, civil or religious. There can be no legitimate government but what is administered by this Holy Ghost. There can be no salvation without it. All without it is rebellion and perdition, or in more orthodox words, damnation. That was John Adams. Samuel Adams, signer of the Declaration of Independence. I rely upon the merits of Jesus Christ for a pardon of all my sins. I conceive we cannot better express ourselves than by humbly supplicating the supreme ruler of the world for the promoting and speedily bringing on the holy and happy period when the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be everywhere established and the people willing, willingly bow to the scepter of him who is the Prince of Peace. Josiah Bartlett, signer of the Declaration of Independence. Confess before God our aggravated transgressions and implore His pardon and forgiveness through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, that the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ may be made known to all nations. Gunning Bedford, signer of the Constitution. To the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, be ascribed all honor and dominion forevermore. Amen. 
Charles Carroll, signer of the Declaration of Independence. On the mercy of my Redeemer, I rely for salvation and on his merits, not on the works I have done in obedience to his precepts. I, Charles Carroll, hope that through and by the merits, sufferings, and mediation of my only Savior in Jesus Christ, I may be admitted into the kingdom prepared by God for those who love, fear, and truly serve him. Alexander Hamilton Signer of the Constitution. I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hamilton also recommended the formation of what he titled the Christian Constitutional Society and listed two goals for its formation. First, the support of the Christian religion and second, the support of the Constitution of the United States. This organization was to have numerous clubs throughout each state which would meet regularly and work to elect to office those who reflected the goals of the Christian Constitutional Society. John Hancock, signer of the Declaration. Hancock called on the state of Massachusetts to pray that, to pray that all nations may bow to the scepter of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that the whole earth may be filled with his glory. 2. That the spiritual kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be continually increasing until the whole earth shall be filled with His glory. 3. To confess their sins before God and implore His forgiveness through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. John Hart, signer of the Declaration. Knowing that it is appointed for all men once to die and after that the judgment, that's Hebrews 9.27, I give and recommend my soul into the hands of Almighty God who gave it and my body to the earth to be buried in a decent and Christian-like manner to receive the same again at the general resurrection by the mighty power of God. Patrick Henry, being a Christian, is a character which I prize far above all this world has or can boast. Being a Christian is a character which I prize far above all this world has or can boast. Let's keep going, shall we? Samuel Huntington, signer of the Declaration. It becomes a people publicly to supplicate the pardon that we may obtain forgiveness through the merits and mediation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. James Madison, signer of the, Dec of the Constitution. A watchful eye must be kept on ourselves, lest, while we are building ideal monuments of renown and bliss here, we neglect to have our names enrolled in the annals of heaven. Robert Treat Payne, signer of the Declaration. I desire to bless and praise the name of God Most High for appointing me my birth in a land of gospel light, where the glorious tidings of a Savior and of pardon and salvation through Him have been continually sounding in my ears. I am constrained to express my adoration of the Supreme Being, the author of my existence. In full belief of His providential goodness and His forgiving mercy revealed to the world through Jesus Christ, through whom I hope for never-ending happiness in a future state. I believe the Bible to be written, to be the written Word of God, and to contain in it the whole rule of faith and manners. Benjamin Rush, signer of the Declaration. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ prescribes the wisest rules for just conduct in every situation of life. Happy they who are enabled to obey them in all situations. My only hope of salvation is in the infinite transcendent love of God manifested to the world by the death of his son upon the cross. Nothing but his blood will wash away my sins. Acts 22:16. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Revelation 22, 20. The great enemy of the salvation of man, in my opinion, never invented a more effective means of limiting Christianity from the world than by persuading mankind that it was improper to read the Bible at schools. The Bible, when not read in schooled, schools, is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. The Bible should be read in our schools in preference to all other books. Roger Sherman, signer of the Declaration, signer of the Constitution. I believe that there is only one living and true God, existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are a revelation from God and a complete rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. I believe that God did not send His own Son to become man, die in the room instead of sinners, and thus to lay... <coughs> I believe that God did send his own son to become man, die in the room instead of sinners, and thus to lay a foundation for the offer of pardon and salvation to all mankind, so as all may be saved, who are willing to accept the gospel offer. I believe that the souls of believers are, at their death, made perfectly holy and immediately taken to glory, that at the end of this world there will be a resurrection of the dead and a final judgment of all mankind, when the righteous shall be publicly acquitted by Christ the judge, and admitted to everlasting life and glory, and the wicked be sentenced to everlasting punishment. Richard Stockton, signer of the Declaration. I think it proper here not only to subscribe to the entire belief of the great and leading doctrines of the Christian religion, such as the being of God, the universal defection and depravity of human nature, the divinity of the person and the completeness of the redemption purchased by the blessed Savior, the necessity of the operations of the divine spirit, of divine faith accompanied with the habitual virtuous life, and the universality of the divine providence, but also in the bowels of a father's affection to exhort and charge my children that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, that the way of life as Jews must oppose revisionist efforts to deny our nation's Christian heritage. Don Fedor, or Fedor, he's a columnist. Oops, so let me read that last line again. I think I messed up again. Let me finish that. Richard Stockton, I'm going to read that over.
the necessity of the operation of the divine spirit of divine faith accompanied with the habitual virtuous life and the universality of the divine providence but also in the bowels of a father's affection to exhort and charge my children that the fear of god is the beginning of wisdom that the way of life held up in the christian system is calculated for the most complete happiness that can be enjoyed in this mortal state and that all occasions of vice and immorality is injurious either immediately or consequentially even in this life. And one last one, John Witherspoon, signer of the Declaration. There is no salvation in any other than in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. If you are not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, if you're not clothed with the spotless robe of his righteousness, you must forever perish. And many others, end quote, and you must perish. So what was that? I don't know, 20 maybe? That was a lot. That wasn't all of them. But that was a, uh, I think you get the picture now, that they were uh, evangelicals. Like uh, everyone that we read could have been a, um, could have preached a sermon. I don't know how many, but I think a lot of them were preachers, by the way. Uh, let's see here. Problem number five. Got two more to go after this. Problem number five. Poignant display of historical ignorance. Here is their view. The Constitution also says nothing about God, the Bible, or the Ten Commandments. That's a flat-out lie. So they don't know anything about the basic history and they're completely ignorant of the Bible. And they, that, what was that? Dumez claims to be a, a theologian at uh, Calvin University. Is that right? That's crazy. All right. Benjamin Franklin exchanged numerous letters with his friends, the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper of Boston. In one letter, Franklin noted that when he quoted Bible verses in America, there was no need identifying those verses because everyday common Americans knew the Bible so well that they recognized when it was cited. But Franklin noted that when he spoke in France or England, the crowds there were so biblically illiterate that they did not recognize Bible verses when he cited them. You can see that um, in the Benjamin Franklin from Benjamin Franklin to Samuel Cooper, 15th of May, 1781 archives. That's in the archives.gov. Now there's there's like it'd be a whole nother two hours just going on the footnotes that they have with this with the with these historical facts. Today's Americans are the Europeans of Franklin's day. They don't recognize the Bible when they hear it, or something is quoted from it. Or when something is quoted from it. Significantly, today's failure to recognize biblical quotations does not imply an absence of its impact on the document. Yeah, see, I could go anywhere and start talking about the Bible and, and they'd be looking at me like I'm crazy. Like, what? What are you talking about? Is that Shakespeare? Um, let's see here. We're going to look at some explicit biblical references in the Constitution. Bear with me. 
For example, the Constitution stipulates that when Congress passes a bill, the President has 10 days to sign the bill, Sundays accepted. Sundays, the Christian Sabbath, were excluded by the Constitution from the count of the allotted 10 days. There is no other religion in the world that observed a Sunday Sabbath except Christianity. As the Supreme Court of California noted in 1858, the Sabbath observed by various religions included the Friday of the Mohammedan, the Saturday of the Israelite, or the Sunday of the Christian. The South Carolina Supreme Court in 1846 similarly noted, Christianity is a part of the common law of the land, with liberty of conscience to all. It has always been so recognized. The U.S. Constitution allows it as a part of the common law. The president is allowed 10 days to sign a bill, with the exception of Sunday. The legislator does not sit, public offices are closed, and the government recognizes the day in all things. The observance of Sunday is one of the usages of the common law recognized by our U.S. and state governments. Christianity is part and parcel of the common law. The specific recognition of the Christian Sabbath in the Constitution was cited for decades by the state and federal courts as proof of the Christian nature of the country and its governing documents. Just as the Sunday's accepted clause shows the religious nature of the Constitution, so too do the fifth or do the five oath-taking clauses. The founders repeatedly affirmed was oath-taking a solely religious activity was that the oath-taking was a solely religious activity. For example, James Madison called it the strongest of religious ties. Constitution signer Rufus King explained that oaths were a principle which is proclaimed in the Christian system. John Adams said that there were sacred obligations. Declaration signer John Witherspoon said that taking an oath indeed is an act of worship. And George Washington warned to never let oath-taking become a secular activity, which indeed it has become. Furthermore, the Constitution declares in Article 8 that it was written in the year of our Lord, 1787. Most legal documents of that day gave only the year. A few added in the year of our Lord, but the drafters of the Constitutional personalized that phrase, making it in the year of our Lord. It was rare for documents in that day to use that phrase, but the U.S. Constitution does. There's other parts of the Constitution that also demonstrate a reliance on biblical principles and rhetoric. For example, compare Article 2, Section 1 provision that a president must be a natural-born citizen with Deuteronomy 17.15. Article 3, Section 3, Provision Regarding Witnesses and Capital Punishment with Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. Article 3, Section 3, Provision Against Attainder with Ezekiel 18.20. And notice that Isaiah 33.22 defines the three branches of government. Ezra 7.24 sets forth the type of tax exemptions that the founders gave to the churches. Tax exemptions that still exist today. The concept of republicanism set forth in Article 4, Section 4, that is, of electing our leaders 
at the local county, state, and federal levels has its origins in Exodus chapter 18, verse 21. In fact, Noah Webster, the founder personally responsible for Article 1, Section 8, uh, I think that's paragraph 8 of the Constitution, uh, specifically cites Exodus 18.21 as do declaration signers John Witherspoon and Benjamin Rush. And on multiple occasions, John Adams directly affirmed that the principle undergirding the constitutional separation of powers was the same principle found in Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? A point similarly made by the signers of the Constitution, George Washington and Alexander Hamilton. And following the writing and ratification of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights was penned by the founders, becoming the capstone of the Constitution of this U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren declared, quote, I believe the entire Bill of Rights came into being because of the knowledge of our forefathers had of the Bible and their belief in it. Freedom of belief, of expression, of assembly, of petition, the dignity of the individual, the sanctity of the home, equal justice under law, and the reservation of powers to the people. I like to believe we are living today in the spirit of the Christian religion. I like also to believe that as long as we do so, no great harm can come to the country. There is an abundant documentary evidence to demonstrate what Chief Justice Warren avowed. For example, the protections of the due process clauses of the U.S. Constitution, the Fourth through the Eighth Amendments, which contain specific provisions to secure justice in court proceedings, were based on Bible teachings. Even Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, one of the most secular-minded justices in the Supreme Court history, openly acknowledges that the right of an accused to meet his accusers face-to-face -face is mentioned in, among other things, the Bible. In proof of this, Breyer cites federal practices and procedure, federal rules of evidence, which devotes more than 20 pages to documents or to document the ways in which the Bible directly shaped the due process clauses of the Bill of Rights. And the Bible likewise influenced other amendments in the Bill of Rights. Uh, here's some more examples of them using the Bible um, for, uh, for the Constitution's writings and rat ratifications. Uh, James Madison testified that the Constitution was the result of a finger of that almighty hand, which had so often been manifested to them throughout the Revolution. Uh, significantly, several founders invoked the unique Bible phrase, finger of God, which is used in the Bible to represent miraculous manifestations of his authority and power. As in Luke 11, 20, Exodus 8, 19, Deuteronomy 9, 10, Daniel 5, 5, and Exodus 31, 18. Alexander Hamilton, too, declared that the Constitution was a system which, without the finger of God, never could have been suggested and agreed upon. George Washington avowed that the Constitution appears to me, then, little short of a miracle, and that it was demonstrated. It will demonstrate as visibly the finger of providence as any possible event in the course of human affairs can ever designate it. Benjamin Franklin believed that the writing of the Constitution had been influenced, guided, and governed by that omnipotent, omnipresent, and bene beneficent ruler in whom all inferior spirits live and move and have their beings. That's Acts 17.28. 
and founding father Benjamin Rush avowed that the Constitution in its form and adoption is as much the work of a divine providence as any of the miracles recorded in the Old and New Testament were the effects of divine power. So the founders definitely did not see the Constitution as a secularly produced document. There is no question that many of the Constitution's clauses and provisions are both filled with and inspired by biblical and Christian principles. It is not a secular document, and according to John Adams, it will not work properly if it ever becomes one. As he affirmed, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. George Washington agreed, and in his famous farewell address, considered the most significant speech ever delivered by a U.S. president, he warned citizens to never let our government become secular and God-free, reminding them of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. In fact, George Washington succinctly warned that no man can be called an American patriot if he attempts to secularize and remove religion and morality from the public sphere. The evidence of unequivocal is unequivocal that the Bible does indeed include much biblical references and language and incorporates many unique biblical principles. Interestingly, some modern political scientists set out to identify the significant sources that influence and shape the framers' unique constitutional ideas that have resulted in an unprecedented success. No other nation in the history of the world has had such a successful governing document. According to Cornell University Law School, throughout history, the average constitution endures 17 years, but our celebrated but ours celebrated 234. 234 years of our Constitution. And the average Constitution lasts for 17 years. It's amazing what can happen if you base everything on God's Word. In an attempt to document the source of the unique ideas that have resulted in such an enduring document, political scientists from the University of Houston embarked on an ambitious 10-year project to analyze writings from the founding era that would be 1760 to 1805 with the goal of isolating and identifying the specific political authorities quoted during that period selecting some 15,000 representative writings the researchers identified and isolated some 3100 direct quotation in those works and then documented the original sources of those quotations. The results showed that the single source cited far and away more than any other was the Bible. 34% of the quotes in the representative writings of the founding era were taken directly from the Bible. According to the researchers, although the citations came from virtually every part of the Bible, St. Paul was the favorite in the New Testament. St. Peter was the next, 
than John's Gospel. Deuteronomy was the most cited Old Testament book, followed by Isaiah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Other prominently cited books of the Bible were Psalms, Proverbs, Jeremiah, Chronicles, and Judges. Don't forget, if you haven't been reading the Bible lately, that it's uh, not one book, but it's uh, 66 books comprised two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Problem number six. Selective editing to reach the opposite result. This is their claim. For evidence that the United States was founded as a secular nation, look no further than the 1797 Treaty of Tripoli, an agreement the U.S. negotiated with a country in present-day Libya to end the practice of pirates attacking American ships. It was ratified unanimously by a Senate still half-filled with signers of the Constitution and, and declared the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on Christian religion. So that statement is debunked in history. From 1784 to 1816, America was engaged in a war on terror against Muslims. This was a 32-year war, much longer than our second war on terror from 2001 to 2021, which many under-informed under -informed commentators today wrongly claim to be the longest war in American history. That is not true. The war on terror against Muslims was our longest war. The roots of that earlier conflict date back to the end of the American War for Independence when five Islamic nations, Turkey, Tunis, Morocco, Algiers, and Tripoli, began making indiscriminate attacks against the property and interests of what they claimed to be Christian nations. America, England, France, Spain, Portugal, Denmark, Sweden. Those five attacking nations were called the Barbary States, named for the Berber ethnic people who became Muslims and largely inhabited these regions. And they attacked American civilian merchant vessels wherever they found them, seizing the ships and cargo and making slaves of the crew. Those slaves were both white and black, for American ships at the time were highly integrated. The Muslims had already taken some 10 to 15 million slaves in Africa. The Muslims had already taken some 10 to 15 million slaves in Africa, and many millions more outside Africa, including captured seamen. In 1784, Congress had sent American diplomats, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and Benjamin Franklin, overseas to negotiate with the Muslim terrorists and end the unprovoked attacks. They found this to be a difficult task. After two years, Adams and Jefferson candidly asked the ambassador from Tripoli, from Tripoli, today called Libya, the motivation behind the attacks against Americans. He responded that it was founded on the laws of their prophet Muhammad, that it was written in the Quran that all nations who should not have acknowledged their authority were sinners, that it was their right and duty to make war upon them wherever they could be found and to make slaves of all they that could they could take as prisoners, and that every uh, Muslim, Muslim 
who should be slain in battle was sure to go to paradise. This was the ambassador from Tripoli. Given the Muslims' spiritual incentive to enslave and make war, their attacks against American ships were frequent. In fact, in just one year, 1790, Algiers alone seized 11 American ships and enslaved the sailors, holding them for sale or for ransom. This was a profitable trade, for as John Adams reported, the ransom price is 6000 for a master captain, 4000 for a mate, and 1500 for each sailor. In today's money, that would be about 130000 for a captain, $85,000 for an officer, and 35000 for each sailor. They could thus rake, up, rake in up to a million dollars or more for each ship. Despite their best efforts, Jefferson, Adams, and Franklin were, were unable to achieve any change in the policy or thinking of the terrorists. George Washington became president. The problem remained unresolved. Dispatching diplomatic envoys to negotiate freedom for kidnapped seamen and a guarantee of unmolested shipping in the Mediterranean, they secured several treaties of peace and amity with the Muslim Barbary powers. In those treaties, America's was, America was required to send hundreds of thousands of dollars, tens of millions in today's money, of tribute, official extortion money, to the Muslim countries to secure the quote-unquote, guarantee of no further attacks. As one example, a Muslim ambassador told the Americans that a perpetual peace could be made with his nation for the price of 30,000 guineas, which would be like $2.3 million today, with an additional 3,000 guineas, uh, 230,000, to be personally paid to the ambassador himself. After, often, the Muslims also required added considerations from America, including us building and providing a warship as a gift to Tripoli. A gift frigate, a smaller but faster warship to Algiers, paying 525000 to ransom captured American seamen from Algiers and so forth. Having no other recourse, America made the payments. Because the Muslims viewed the controversy as one between religions, the Americans repeatedly sought to convince them that as a Christian nation, we were not engaged in any religious holy war against their faith. We simply wanted to stop their terrorism and attacks against us. The earlier 1786 treaty negotiated by Jefferson and Adams that eventually ended Moroccan hostilities against the United States had contained three separate clauses making this point. The 1795 treaty with Algiers contained similar acknowledgments, as did subsequent treaties with other Muslim nations. The 1796 treaty with Tripoli likewise declared, As the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion as it has in itself no character or enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslimen, Muslims, and as the said states, America has never entered into any war or act of hostility against any uh, Mohammedan nation. 
It is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries. This clause acknowledged that America was not the type of former historic so-called Christian nations that had an inherent hostility against all Muslims and non-Christians, that America was not like one of the Christian nations of Europe during the Middle Ages that fought Muslims in the Crusades, expelled them from Granada, and so forth. In short, America was not part of the European style of Christian religion that hated Muslims and their religion. Founding Father John Jay described Americans' form of Christianity as wise and virtuous. John Quincy Adams called it civilized, and John Adams termed it rational. Noah Webster further affirmed that ecclesiastical establishments of Europe, which served to support tyrannical governments, are not the Christian religion, but abuses and corruptions of it. Daniel Webster agreed noting that for America, general, tolerant Christianity is the law of the land. Perhaps Thomas Jefferson best captured the difference when he declared, the comparisons of our government with those of Europe are like a comparison of heaven and hell. Yet many secularists and progressives today ignore this important history and instead boldly lift a single partial phrase from that treaty to claim that it declares, the government of the United States is in no sense founded on the Christian religion. They claim it declares that is that the government of the United States is in no sense founded on the Christian religion, which is a lie. Significantly, these critics, as CNN did, cite only the first 15 words of a single sentence that is actually 81 words long, placing a period where there is not one, and ignoring the other 66 words that provide the context. But notwithstanding their convoluted efforts to edit, censor, and reverse the self-evident meaning of that clause and make the sentence say something it does not, there is no government document declaring that America is not a Christian nation. To the contrary, there are literally hundreds of official documents over the past two centuries stating just the opposite. This includes the U.S. Supreme Court on multiple occasions, including its unanimous decision in 1844, in which the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed that America was a Christian country. Notice that being a Christian nation allows us to rule a country morally. Ethically. I'll end with this on problems, or for problem six anyway, that is. We got one more, problem seven. In 1892, the Supreme Court again delivered a unanimous ruling declaring of America that this is a Christian nation. In 1931, the Supreme Court reaffirmed the same position for a third time, stating, We are a Christian people. And scores of courts, both federal as well as state, have made the same unequivocal declarations over the past two centuries.
All right, last of the seven, problem seven, completely ignoring historical facts. And for this, their bullet point is saying the U.S. was founded as a Christian nation ignores the fact that much of its initial wealth was derived from slave labor and land stolen from Native Americans. They, they claim that Christian America brought oppression, that America's wealth was derived from slave labor, and that America's land was stolen from the Native Americans. Okay? That's a lie. That did not happen. Christ uh, America was not founded on immorality, was not founded on unlawful acts. So problem seven, we're going to go through facts, historical evidence that claims the truth of how America was founded. All right? That's the lie, and they, they keep trying to use that lie today to now um, that we're, we uh, enslaved people, we had slaves, and that's what America is all about. That's, a, that's part of our history. That's part of a dark part of our history, but that's not how America started. That's not what America was founded on. All right, to counteract this, number one, in no way does America being a Christian nation imply that proponents of such a view reject or ignore the sins of America's past, but much rather advocates of a historical Christian America are more acutely aware of these failures, and throughout our history, it has been Christian ministers, pastors, and leaders at the forefront of fighting against such failures and shortcomings. I told you, America is not a perfect country. There are times America has made mistakes and times America has tripped up. But the fact is, we are a Christian nation. And when we make mistakes, we correct them. But we did not start out on error. We started out the right way. Ministers such as Increase Mather were instrumental in stopping the Salem witch trials. Ministers and religious leaders led the charge against slavery. There are countless examples, but for a few, we're going to look at a few. Uh, Quaker leader Benjamin Lay, all slave keepers that keep the innocent in bondage. Um, these are links that you could look up. If you, um, there is so much more, so much more stuff to go over, but if you, um, the way I got this compilation, this historical content comprised the way it is. It's all, it's all historical facts. But you can look up exactly what I have if you go to Glenn Beck's uh, website. And he should have it posted there. And then you can go to these links for these ones I'm mentioning. And you've got all the references and the 10 pages of footnotes and so on. Congregationalist minister and theologian Jonathan Edwards, the injustice and impolicy of the slave trade and of the slavery of the Africans. These are ministers that oppose slavery and that preached against it in our country. John Wesley, thoughts upon slavery. These are like books that they wrote against slavery. All right, counterpart, counterpoint number two. The contention that slavery constituted a major source of wealth during the founding of America is entirely erroneous and little more than a gross 
regurgitation of old pro-slavery Confederate propaganda. The importation of slaves into North America did not become substantial until more than a century after its initial founding. No more than 5,000 slaves were disembarked any year until 1727, when it began to substantially increase, well after its Christian founding. Significantly, slavery impoverished the areas which practiced it in comparison to those parts of the country which did not. For example, Alexis de Tocqueville noticed that the colonies in which there were no slaves became more populous and more prosperous than those in which slavery flourished. Tocqueville's observations are confirmed by the facts of economic history. The story of the South is one of a stagnation and increasing falling behind the rest of the nation. Aside from the few owners of large plantations, the people in the South were generally more impoverished than the people in the North. At the time of the Revolutionary War, the South had been the wealthier at the time of the Revolutionary War, the South had been the wealthier region by far, but their reliance upon slavery sapped the strength out of the region. As economic historians from Harvard and UC Davis have explained, from 1774 to 1860. The per annum growth rates for New England, 1.26%, and the Middle Atlantic, 1.08%, were well above the South's 0.31%. Indeed, by 1860, the real product per capita in the South was over 40 points behind New England. A Harvard economic study identified that even today there exists a significant negative relationship between past slave use and current economic performance. In fact, all forms of slavery were detrimental to economic development. As early as 1793, major figures such as Noah Webster pointed out that in no particular are the deplorable effects of slavery more visible than in checking or destroying national industry. Wherever we turn our eyes to view the comparative effects of freedom and slavery on agriculture, arts, commerce, and science, the mind is deeply affected at the astonishing contrast. To labor solely for the benefit of other men is repugnant to every principle of the human heart. Counterpoint number three. Ministers and religious communities were at the forefront in treating native tribes with respect and honoring land deals. The religious pilgrims strictly only occupied land lawfully purchased lawfully purchased land at a price agreed upon by the native tribes and founding Plymouth in 1620. When they founded Plymouth, Plymouth Rock, it was bought and paid for by the Indians. The two sides agreed upon a price. At the start of King Philip's War in 1675, Plymouth Governor Josiah Winslow explained, I think I can clearly say that before these present troubles broke out, the English did not possess one foot of land in this colony, but was fairly obtained by honest purchase of the Indian proprietors. Reverend Roger Williams lawfully purchased land at a price agreed upon by the native tribes 
in order to found Rhode Island in 1636. Reverend John Davenport lawfully purchased land at a price agreed upon by the native tribes in order to found New Haven in 1637. In founding Pennsylvania, this is my, one of my favorite facts here, William Penn purchased tracts of land from the Indians. He even purchased some of the land multiple times because different tribes claimed the same property, having taken and retaken it from each other in conquest. Penn ensured that he secured a clear title from each tribe that claimed it. Remember the 1888 wall map of Jamestown versus Pilgrims. Throughout the Northeast and most of early America, the land was bought by the colonists in the South. It was different. But because land was bought, the long-lasting treaty in American history between whites and Indians was the treaty between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoags. The Wampanoag Indians there in New England. That was the longest treaty. The Pilgrims did not steal land. They bought land. They respected the people on the beaches of which land they owned. And they bought it from them respectfully. I want to go back to that founding Pennsylvania, William Penn. This guy was so honorable, this founder of Pennsylvania, he bought land, some land three times. Three times he bought it from the Indians. Some of the land. That, that's to show the to show the honor and the integrity of our country. There are times in our history that we've made mistakes and that we did things wrong. But that's a lie to assume that we started out in crooked doings. These are unfounded claims, and what I've been doing throughout for this past um, hour and 53 minutes has been uh, going over our history of our country, the United States of America, and the truth. We need to know the truth of our Constitution. We need to know the truth of our uh, Declaration of Independence and our Bill of Rights. We need to know the truth of our preachers. Reverend Roger Williams founded Rhode Island. Reverend John Davenport founded New Haven. William Penn purchased Pennsylvania as part of the land three times from the Indians. That's the longest treaty that we had with the Indians was with the Pilgrims. This thing of slavery. I got another. There's another. I don't know. I don't have it here. I'm so I'm going off the top of my head. Uh, that just uh, completed the um, the uh, the historical data points that I have here, debunking CNN's article and imposter Christianity. Uh, they are the imposters, the socialist Marxists, uh, the uh, the Democrats. Now there is no Republican Democrat party. It's a uniparty. Um, it's a government that's concerning its efforts with uh, the one world order to take over our country. This is, in fact, a Christian country. 
and there's I can't remember I don't have it in front of me but the um, the pilgrims uh, there was a um, there was a slave ship from Africa that landed on the beaches here of our colonies and they realized that these they were slave owners and that they had slaves they the, the pilgrims immediately arrested the ship all the cat the crew on that ship arrested them put them in jail and got a crew that that would uh captain that ship back and freed those slaves and brought them back to wherever they were kidnapped from and released them that's how our country um runs so when so when you have someone say that we are not a christian country when you have someone that says that our founders were all liars and that they didn't believe they didn't believe in god they were all secular it's a lie go back to the well for one you've got this podcast here you can go back and listen to and memorize some of these points, but understand this is a Christian country. The Declaration of Independence proves it. The Bill of Rights proves it. The Constitution proves it. And don't let any, anyone else tell you otherwise. Um, and that's how we have to move forward. We have to take the examples of our founding fathers and not let them down. I mean, if the commonly used phrase is they'd be rolling over in their graves. If they could see what's happening, what we've let happen. We the people are still here. We we the people are still the majority. And majority kind of, uh, the majority of us, we need to speak out and quit being the silent majority. That is a huge problem. And that is a detriment to our country. Because I was actually, you know, I was born an American citizen. And then I accepted Jesus Christ as my, my Lord and Savior. Now I'm a, a citizen of heaven. And I, I love both. I love the, the country to which I'm going in heaven. I have eternal life through Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But I'm also in time in this time being on this earth. I'm an American citizen and I cherish both. I will not be silenced because of the the evil we are facing. I'm going to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That is my goal. That is a, with the Holy Spirit. That is the, the umption the, that He has given me as a pastor, also preaching the Word of God. I hope to be true and, and faithful. And standing fast, Galatians 5, 1 says, the standing fast in the liberty that he has given us and not be entangled in the yoke of bondage again. Christ has set us free. Jesus in 14, John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So as we close, we're going to close in this. I want to close in a word of prayer. Um, I thank you all for joining and listening today. And I hope that you have a good day. I hope that this uh, fortifies you and your, your knowledge of the country. And if you didn't know any of this, that you would study it and learn it and apply it to your life so you can be bold as an American citizen and be an example for the world on how we give God credit. We give him the 
the the the knowledge that he is in charge that he is divine that divine providence brought us together here publicly help us to not be fearful of what may come it hasn't come yet but um it's going to happen if we don't stand up and so I'm going to close in a word of prayer. I'm going to get to the, the uh, comments here. So I do see the comments. So don't, um, I'll respond to those here shortly. Um, but I appreciate the joining. Appreciate your participation. Let's close in a word of prayer. Uh, dear Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for what you've done for us, what you've given us. Help us to... Um, live for you help us to be brave be steadfast be unmovable always abounding in the work of the lord help us to speak out the devil wants to silence us and we see clearly in his um we see his hands we see the right now it's the government here oppressing the people and we need to be steadfast against them we need to speak up be bold they tell us to shut up we need to speak out even louder we need to push back and we need to resist Disobedience to tyrants is obedience to God. We pray that you give us the strength to do that. Help us to show compassion and the love that we have for our fellow man. We give you the glory and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.